0: I think we'll start um, uh, our second session. Thank you very much for for coming uh, uh, to this session. Um, This is looking at um, impact and the new digital paradigm. (coughs) And we've been working on this project for um, three years now. And it's been really interesting to see how digital tools have developed in that time that have really fed into and influenced discussion around impact so today we're going to hear from three speakers um, that will look at how these tools can be used to create and collaborate on academic work, um, how they can be used to share academic research more widely, to make it more accessible to those outside of universities, and also how tools and metrics can be used to help to track Um, impact. So we're going to hear from um, three speakers today. I'm going to ask the speakers to work uh, one after the other and so ask you to hold all of your questions until the end but then we are leaving a nice uh, long time to have a discussion both with the speakers and and from the floor. So I'm going to start by handing over to to Victor Henning who is the co-founder and CEO of Mendeley.
1: morning everyone and uh, thank you for having me here. Um, So what I'm going to talk about today is the idea behind Mendeley and how we want to use it to make research more open and collaborative and what the implications of that might be also for the um, assessment of impact and science. So to start off I'm going to do a very very brief introduction to Mendeley for those people that don't know it yet uh, since it's not just academics in the audience. Can I see a brief show of hands? So who of you knows Mendeley already or has maybe used it? Oh, actually, that's, that's more than I thought. That's pretty good. So good thing that I'm keeping the introduction brief then. The idea for Mendeley grew out of uh, my own needs and my friend's needs as PhD students. So back in uh, 2005 when we started our PhDs, we were wondering why wasn't there an easier way to manage research papers? Why would we have to manually input the data into EndNote or other tools to keep track of the PDFs that we were reading for our PhDs? And so as our PhDs progressed, we you know, toyed with the idea and finally thought there should be a software that can automatically extract the relevant information from those research papers, the author, title, journal name, uh, and so forth, basically turn the collection of PDFs that we had into a structured database to help us manage our research workflows more efficiently. And that's what we developed. So by now... Uh, We have free software. It's called Mendeley Desktop. You can download it on Windows, Mac, and Linux. It's cross-platform. And we also have mobile applications um, for iPhones and iPads. And there are third-party apps for Android and Kindle and so forth. And Mendeley automatically extracts metadata and full text from your collection of PDFs. It turns them into a structured database that you can filter um, and sort by... Author by year of publication, by journal, we automatically extract keywords, so we really make it easy for you to set up uh, your academic <clears throat> reference library without a lot of manual input once you 've set up your library, we make it really easy to annotate uh, and and highlight uh, important thoughts in research papers so you can use Mendeley to digitally create uh, highlights and sticky notes uh, to organize your thoughts on the research. And these thoughts can be shared with people that you're collaborating with. So in your research group or in a research project across institutions, you can create a closed private group in which you can collaborate and, and share documents and see each other's annotations. And you get a news feed quite similar to Facebook's but centered around the research activity in your group that tells you what the documents are that have been added and what people's thoughts on those documents are and questions and discussions that revolve around those documents. But the key idea of Mendeley is that all of the information that passes through Mendeley Desktop and the mobile applications and the website gets anonymously aggregated uh, in the cloud in a central database. And I'll talk about that in a minute. So since we launched uh, Mendeley to the public in 2009, so... um, almost four years ago now. We've grown to a global research network which now has uh, two million users. And the 15 largest user bases um, are some of the top research institutions uh, in the US and the UK. So Cambridge, Oxford, Stanford, MIT, and Harvard are where we have the most users. Um, and that's a fact that we are quite proud of, that we've managed to build something that makes uh, the scientists at these institutions uh, more productive. but the growth of the community has really been fueled by a program that we've set up, and that's the Mendeley Advisor Program. Um, It grew out of our our most vocal users uh, who wanted to support us in our vision of making science more open and collaborative. And they sent us emails asking, okay, how can we help you achieve that mission and that vision? And so we created a a community program that provides uh, our advisors with teaching materials which they can use, adapt, or translate into their language, uh, presentations, posters. um, And they, in turn, teach Mendeley classes on their campus. So we now have 1,500 unpaid volunteers who, on on their campus around the globe, um, help us spread the word for Mendeley, but also give us feedback from that community and tell us what works and what doesn't work and what we still need to develop. And they help us test new ideas and new features And we regularly have days where advisors come into our office and interact with uh, our developers and give them feedback on things that we have in the pipeline. So our 2 million users over those past four years have collectively uploaded an astonishing amount of research to our site. In total, more than 300 million research papers have been uploaded to our service since we started in 2009 that's 300 million documents. If you deduplicate them, because obviously the most popular research papers will get uploaded multiple times by different people, which forms the basis for being able to measure their popularity. If you deduplicate those 300 million documents, you arrive at a number of about 75 million unique research documents. By comparison, uh, Thomson Reuters' Web of Science, Elsevier Scopus, lists about 48 to 49 million unique records in their database. But what makes this collection of data unique is that it's not just another metadata database, not just another collection of research papers, but because it's been uploaded by users, because it's been crowdsourced, it has unique user-generated information (coughs) attached to each document. So for each document, we know how many people have been reading and interacting with it, uh, what the background and demographics of those readers are, what is their academic discipline, Uh, What's their academic status? Are they undergraduate students, PhD students, Uh, postdocs? is their field of research? What else have they been reading at the same time? What are keywords that they've been applying to the document? Which parts of the document have they been highlighting? So it's a wealth of information that otherwise wouldn't be available. And you can obviously slice and dice that data in different ways. And when we're talking about uh, alternative impact measurement, Uh, we felt one of the first ways to productively use that data was to package it in a way that would make it useful for libraries and librarians in helping them optimize the collections that they subscribe to, so making decisions about which journals they want to subscribe to or which journals they might want to cancel. So we created something called the Mendeley Institutional Edition in collaboration with Swets, which is a library um, uh, subscriptions agent, And the Mendeley Institutional Edition, first of all, allows uh, an institution to upgrade every member of their institution to a Mendeley premium account, meaning every student, every researcher on campus uh, gets more storage space, uh, more ability to collaborate, premium support, and personalized recommendations. But also, we provide the librarian with a data dashboard. Uh, Take, for example, Stanford University, which is one of our first customers for the Mendeley Institutional Edition. The Stanford University Library now has a dashboard that tells them what are the journals that their researchers are using the most um, and which journals Stanford has subscribed to which are not getting a lot of usage. So they can make more informed decisions about which journals are important to their students and faculty. Conversely, they can also keep track of their researchers' research output, their publications. Which journals are they publishing in, Uh, how many readers do those publications have? What's the impact of those publications in the Mendeley community? And it also enables them to hone in on individuals' research output. So who are the researchers in their institution who are publishing the most and achieving the most readership for those publications? And it also enables the librarian to stay in touch and, and re-engage uh, with their constituency, the researchers <coughs> that they want to support in their workflow, by telling them what are the public discussion forums, the public groups in Mendeley, where their faculty are engaged in discussions where they might want to dive in and uh, help them discover relevant content. So as I've mentioned, some of our first customers of this kind of new type of impact measurement tool, but impact on, if you will, uh, a faculty and institution level, are places uh, in North America like uh, the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, uh, Stanford University, A couple of places in Asia, like the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology, uh, a Japanese uh, agricultural ministry, and some other places in Europe. And the basis of this has been that in the past year or so, there have been uh, several peer-reviewed studies, uh, one of which was actually authored by Jason, who you'll hear uh, talk uh, later today. Um, And they looked at, first of all, Mendeley's coverage. So... Of a number of articles sampled, um, what was the coverage of Mendeley for those articles? So how much of the global research literature did Mendeley actually track? And um, the figures they found for their samples ranged between 935 to 99.5% of articles. Uh, Moreover, they looked at the correlation between Mendeley's readership statistics and more established impact metrics like Thomson Reuters' Web of Science citations, Uh, Scopus citations and Scholar citations, and invariably all found a high degree of correlation. Now, what's interesting about uh, Mendeley's metrics is that they are accumulated in real time. So, as soon as a Mendeley user adds a document to their library, we immediately know about that. And we can show that usage on our website and also pass it on to other websites. Um, I was actually asked last week by a nature journalist for their year-end roundup of um, f- for the list of top ten papers published this year in terms of readership on Mendeley. Uh, the top papers published this year had thousands of readers on Mendeley, and I just looked up a few of them uh, on Google Scholar, and they only had about 20 or 30 citations, because as you know, it takes a long time for citations to filter through the record, for a paper to get you know uh, cited and a paper that in turn needs to get published, and then uh, that citation is captured maybe a year or two years down the line, whereas with a tool like Mendeley you have an immediacy. So we used that also to release the global research report, as we called it. In the Global Research report, we dug into the usage behavior of our two million users across different countries and research regions. And you can actually see all the details if you go to this short URL here. Uh, MND.ly slash global research report 2012. And what we looked at was in different countries, how many research papers do people actually have in their library? Meaning, how many documents do they access? Um, and how much time do they spend per average day studying and organizing and reading the literature? So there are quite a few interesting results in the disparity between access between different nations. Um, especially if you correlate it with uh, GDP per capita and R&D expenditure per capita. So we found an extremely high, uh, in fact, an exponential relationship between um, R&D expenditure per capita and researchers' ability to access academic content. So it it makes quite interesting reading if you're interested in that. So this is another way in which you can use um, these metrics and, and measure the impact of them. So... To close my presentation, I want to briefly talk about our vision for sharing and unlocking data and enabling others to reuse the information we've accumulated. So the 300 million documents which are in our database now, we are using them to, to turn that collection into a platform for third party application developers uh, under an open license. So you can um, tap into that database under Creative Commons license, reuse the data for commercial non-commercial purposes, completely free um, as long as you attribute Mendeley as the source of the data. So to date, we've had more than 1,500 developers um, create more than 260 active third-party applications that are tapping into this data that our users have uploaded. Um, And I think this is why people like Werner Vogels, who is the CTO of Amazon, Uh, one of the inventors of cloud computing and one of the judges of an app development contest which we held a year ago uh, actually tweeted that he believes that Mendeley can change the face of science by funneling this data to um, a myriad of app developers whose creativity can reuse that data in in ways that we as Mendeley just couldn't conceive and couldn't come up with ourselves. So a couple of examples in terms of impact measurement. Some of the most popular apps... um, in the Mendeley environment are, for example, ReaderMeter, which lets you enter uh, an author name like Duncan Watts, and it then pulls Duncan Watts' publications um, and ranks them by readership on Mendeley. It also shows you Duncan Watts' co-author network and a couple of indices calculated from readership. <coughs> You'll probably also hear um, about Impact Story, which is Jason's project, uh, which is also very popular in terms of API calls, meaning queries to our database. Um, so I'll let Jason talk about that later. Uh, Nature Publishing Group um, slash Macmillan, their parent company, have also gotten into the game. They have a new startup called altmetric.com, which also takes uh, tweets, uh, blog mentions, Mendeley readership data, and comes up with new ways of measuring impact um, on academic thinking through that. Another tool is called PaperCritic. Uh, it lets you review any paper in the Mendeley database and rate it in terms of uh, references, originality, argumentation, readability, and even lets you track the discussion around that paper on Twitter. Uh, One of the far more outlandish ideas, I think, is OpenSnip, which actually won the app development contest where Werner Vogels was a judge. Uh, OpenSnip lets you upload um, your genotyping data. So if you've been using a service like 23andMe, which will Decode uh, your your personal genomic data from a sample of saliva. You can upload that data there, and OpenSNP will then go and automatically find related research from Mendeley and PLOS, the Public Library of Science, to give you a sort of personalized research report uh, for your genes. Um, Plus, other academics can then download your information, ask you questions, and do research with your raw data. Uh, Another tool... Which is quite popular is clank.com, which lets you import your Mendeley library and create semantic links between documents of the type uh, this document here supports that document or refutes that document or uses the same method as that document. Uh, Incidentally, Mendeley has received a 2 million euro research grant from the European Union um, to create uh, a similar thing integrated into the Mendeley interface to enable our users who are already using the Mendeley interface to annotate documents, to actually create semantic links as well, to say how different research papers relate to each other from possibly a predefined set of relationships like supports, refutes, complements, uses the same method. And we would then use the same principle of crowdsourcing that has already uh, helped us aggregate 300 million documents to crowdsource these types of relationships and again pass them out through our API to the academic community for reuse. And I think in the broader context, what this means for the measurement of uh, academic impact in the future, I think will become much more fine-grained, much more granular, and much more meaningful. So instead of having a binary relationship, such as uh, a document has been cited, yes, no. Or even Mendeley's, a document has been read, yes, no. I think in the future, we'll have information that tells us specifically how your thinking has been influenced by specific documents, Uh, whether you've been using a method from a specific paper or you've been uh, using the data from another experiment or whether you've uh, come to a conclusion based on two different papers that refute uh, a previously held notion. So we'll have uh, semantic structured information that tells us specifically how thoughts evolve and how they propagate through the academic record. And I think we'll be able to track that programmatically and third-party developers can reuse that type of information in building new types of apps. Um, that's my presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Um,
0: now we're going to hear from Ziad Mara, who's the Global Publishing Director at Sage. And I think he's not going to use a, a slide, so he's going to roam freely across the stage.
2: Three, two, one. Yeah. <clears throat> Hi. Um, I'm echoing a bit, sorry. The, um, being at a conference like this reminds me of the um, line from the cyberpunk novelist William Gibson, who said, the future is here already, it's just unevenly distributed. Um, and having done a talk Um, on Friday um, about open access at the Academy of Social Sciences. Having done a talk yesterday about disruption in higher education at the Future Book book Conference, and being here today, um, the future has never felt more present. Um, And undeniably, an incredibly exciting time it is too. There's clearly um, disruption, creativity, innovation that's enabling all sorts of possibilities for communication, scholarly communication at that, that wasn't there before. In 2012 alone, I think we will see it as a pivotal year where higher education institutions, for example, got in in on the act through the the MOOC, the massive online open courses, um, which enable now some people to have access to those prestigious universities that wouldn't have otherwise done. Um, Similarly, on the scholarly um, communication side, um, the the journals world is in radical transformation, and um, this was the year, I think, that open access went mainstream, thanks to Finch, thanks to RCUK. Um, it's gone more from, moved from talk to action. And um, it's great to see the amount of growth of the open access movement that's been happening. We've seen um, uh, PeerJ just open its doors this week to accept submissions. PLOS One is now the biggest journal in the world. Um, similarly, around those, um, the, 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 kind of the creation um, of social media through digital technologies has also tremendously increased the possibilities to communicate widely and effectively. Um, I've personally always been a fan of a, of a podcast series called Philosophy Bites by Nigel Warburton, which has had more than 14 million downloads and is probably doing as much for the dissemination of philosophy as anything. And it's actually in that spirit that we've also launched um, Social Science Bites and now Free Speech Bites as um, new ways of taking advantage of social media to get the word out. Um, um, we also, in, through social science space and method space, are using interconnected inter- blogs and community sites, and through Sage Open have attempted to create the big mega journal for social science in open access. So it's no doubt that these are incredibly exciting, innovative, and potentially liberating times. And yet somehow, inertia persists. I think people wring their hands with anxiety and alarm about why it is that things haven't changed more than they have. and so. Um, that uneven distribution that the future um, uh, has has given us um, is either going to be something which is a bit like a ruck in a carpet which just needs a good tug and a bit of the passage of time or is there for more structural reasons? And perhaps somewhat controversially, at least on this panel, I'd be arguing um, that actually I think there are some structural factors that mean that uneven distribution is with us to stay for some time at least. And a way to look at that, I suppose, is to um, almost come back to what, it is, it, what is it that, that um, academic scholarship is, is, is trying to do and academic scholars can do by building their reputations and so on. And I think one of the problems is that we tend to look at the scholarly communication system as a homogenous block. Whereas, you know, to, to, to quote uh, the, the tweet that Victor put up, um, that's the, that face of science that was referenced actually has many features. Um, it's very heterogeneous. And so let me pull back and just give you some facts and figures about that. Um, and especially in terms of the relationship between social science and the whole solid accumulation debate. So there are um, about 3 million articles submitted each year. And that number is growing by about 3%. They're being submitted to something close to 30,000 peer-reviewed journals those journals are being published by something like 2,000 publishers, ranging from the conglomerates to the um, independents, big and small, to the university presses, to learner societies. They end up, after peer-reviewing it all, publishing about 1.5 million um, articles each year. Now, where does social science fit into that picture? Well, the total proportion of that 1.5 million articles, um, represented by HSS, so include humanities here, is a fraction over 10%. And if you take the character Victor put up, Duncan Watts, I don't know what Duncan Watts does for a living, but if Duncan Watts is a social scientist, he probably publishes in a journal which on average puts out 40 articles a year. as As contrasted with some of the big science journals which might put out several hundred articles a year, in fact sometimes several thousand articles a year. It's the case in big science for areas such as like astronomy or physics that acceptance rates are something around 90%. And part of the reason for that is that they are um, the output of major well-funded research projects that contain huge um, um, uh, multiple teams and therefore when they put those articles out often have a gigantic list of contributors, um, often numbering in the hundreds. I think the genome sequencing article that first came out had 2,900 authors on it. Um, and so I think we we kind of allied those distinctions when we talk about scholarly communication we don't think about the nature of social science within that we ignore the fact for example that in social science there's a much much longer half life, that what people at the LSE are calling this dynamic stock of knowledge is built significantly over time Um, I was having a conversation with an academic recently who was saying oh yeah that article by Ken Gergen social psychology is history 1973 jury's still not out, we're still debating it nearly 40 years later and I think It's important to have those facts in mind when we talk about the scholarly communication system and understand what it is that enables it to flourish and succeed. So it's in that context we have to think about how knowledge claims are created and how authority is created. And right now, for good or ill, obviously the major um, route to that is um, citations, the impact factor, um, prestige brands of journals, and so on. Now, I don't deny that those are very flawed measures and problematic in lots of ways. Impact factors, um, clearly very one-dimensional and um, seem to ignore um, the, uh, the, the, uh, I think the, the suggestion offered by, I think it was Einstein who said, not all that counts can be counted and not everything that can be counted counts. And yet we tend to obsess about it. I'm tired of the number of times I go and talk to editorial board members when the new impact factor announcements have come out and say, please don't fetishize it. It's not the whole story. But no, they're watching. Is it going up? Is it going down? It, gets, uh, it, it concentrates binds in a way that, for good or ill, is, is, um, is I think, um, embedded. And actually, even for um, organizations which eschew impact factors, um, there is still some reliance on it. Uh, PLOS One, for example, has an impact factor of over four, and it noticed a huge increase in its submissions once it actually got an ISI uh, 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 um, ranking. Now, in that context, though, it's no surprise that we're looking for a plethora of new measures, that there is a a large upswing of alternative ways of trying to assess impact and and significance and authority. Um, And I think at this table here, my fellow panelists represent two major innovators on that front. And I think those are innovations to be hugely welcomed. They're incredibly valuable ways of enhancing the possibility of people getting their message out and being understood and connecting with others in ways that are of value. However, at the heart of it, what we have to remind ourselves is that in, in, the, in the scholarly communications world, ultimately, authority is the critical measure. Quality, excellence, sustainability are crucial measures in a way that's somewhat different for other worlds. So, you know, people often talk about the music industry. In music, popularity is enough. In scholarship, that's not the case. And someone has to really understand the conditions under which that's... That, um, um, that quality is, um, is produced and it is certified. And I'd argue that um, peer review, for that reason, is is a fundamental aspect of that. That peer review will always be um, uh, one of the key mechanisms through which people can establish their academic credentials. Um, now, the claim is often made that peer review is broken. In fact, I've seen Jason in print do make just that claim. Um, I would say it's clearly under pressure in various ways and clearly not... Um, Um, an ideal mechanism at all. Um, But I think it's absolutely something that um, needs to be renewed and revived in various ways. Um, One of the ways that PLOS One is doing it is by trying this um, review light mechanism, just checking for soundness and validity in terms of their acceptance of what is now, I think, something like 24,000 articles estimated this year. Biggest journal in the world, as I said. Um, when we look at Sage Open, our social science open access journal, we're asking ourselves the question, well, to what extent do soundness and validity read across from the STEM disciplines straightforwardly to all parts of the social sciences? Um, when we you know, look at the LSE typology of social science and see that some of it abuts the natural sciences, some of it um, abuts the humanities, um, we need to be reminded... That actually, there are different bases under which knowledge claims are made, and, and it may be in the more contested areas, deeper peer review is actually required. One way or another, it seems to me that to build a reputation, a scholarly reputation, something that goes beyond popularity, is going to require the assessment of one of one's expert peers. Is going to be the um, and, and the crowd in its wisdom will contribute in various ways, but ultimately. The ladder up which academics are able to, to actually single themselves out from the babel of voices out there is going to require that they are actually able to um, pass those forms of credentialism. And so, to generalize the point, it seems to me that when you look at this digital revolution, there is a lot of conversation about access to information, access to knowledge, and understandable too. As I said, these are hugely liberating and, and creatively disruptive moments, of um, which we've all in this room been massive beneficiaries, I have no doubt. Um, But sometimes that focus, which is on knowledge consumption, can to some extent obscure from view the conditions under which that knowledge is produced, in particular, quality, authoritative scholarly knowledge. And so while the scholarly communication system is clearly not a homogenous one, while the social sciences, which also is not a homogenous block, has its differential um, um, needs, and while that may create sector-specific innovations of one kind or another... Um, it's clear that we will need to find ways one way or another to make sure that especially young academics are able to build their authoritative voices. It's fine for someone who's already established their credentials to use the wide range of alternative media to enhance that position, but ultimately there needs to be that route at the heart of it, that service to be provided that enables the young academic to establish their authoritative voice. To make one plug for one person in the room just before I end, um, for anyone who wants to look at um, the um, relationship between the open access movement and what it implications for social science, I'd very strongly recommend a blog written by my colleague David Mannering, who's sitting at the back there, a really superb overview of just the complexity of that ecosystem and the way social science plays out within it. So anyway, with that, I'll just say, make sure academics get a chance to create authoritative voices in the sea of information in which we swim. Thank you.
0: And uh, lastly, we're going to hear from Jason Priam, who is the co-founder of Impact Story and is a leader in the altmetrics movement. Uh, we're just going to hope that the technology in this digital technology session is going to work and <laughs> allow him to use his to uh, present his slides.
3: Uh, so I want to start by thanking... Uh, project for coming out here, um, for, for bringing me out here. This is my uh, presentation, and I'm going to tweet it in a second. I was going to tweet before I talked, but I forgot. So I'll tweet it when I'm done, and then you can see it. Um, it's online. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, all metrics, um, which is where a couple people have used already, which is really exciting to me, um, and uh, about how maybe that's going to affect the future of scholarship. Um, so I'll get right into it. Um, and this is normally a longer presentation, so I'm going to try and go real fast and we'll see what happens. Um, so the beginning of scholarly communication, you start with a little history, right, is, it was originally about letters, right? Like you had these people that were called at the time gentlemen of science, and they sent one another letters, and that's how they communicated their science, right, in the very beginning. And that was pretty slow and costly, and you had to write the same thing back and forth a lot, but it was the best solution that they had, given the technology, right, of the sort of origins of science. Um, so the, the first revolution in scholarly communication uh, came in the 17th century uh, when Oldenburg, said, you know, he was the Secretary of Royal Society, he said, you know, this is pretty inefficient, the way we're always mailing letters back and forth to each other. Instead of that, why don't y'all all mail letters to me, I'll bind them together, and then I can just sort of sell that, you know, that collection, and it'll be a lot more efficient. So he, again, applied the best available technology, right, the, the printing press, to solving this problem of research dissemination. And it was a big deal, right? I mean, it, it helps change a lot of how we do scholarship, um, and one of the side effects of it, as well as changing, you know, the efficiency and the speed of scholarly dis- dissemination, is also promoted, uh, you know, I think of a homogeneity of outputs, right? If, if you're trying to mass produce these things, these journals, instead of saying, oh, everyone has their own kind of format of letter and stuff like that, it makes a lot more sense to just say, okay, it has to be in this format, it has to be in this article format, it has these particular parts, and we can bind it all together, we can kind of apply this industrial scale replication to this problem. And again, there are some wins to that. But there are some losses, and uh, we'll talk about it in a second. I think the next revolution in scholarly communication is going to promote uh, a diversity of outputs instead of homogeneity of outputs. Um, and the reason for that is because actually publishing something, publishing, right, you look at the word, like, make it public, the idea of making something public has never been easier, right? It's, it, it's almost infinitesimally easier. Right? It's like, it's pushing a button, right? I've published four things sitting there at that table, right, on Twitter. Like, publication, making something public is trivial. Now, of course, there's a lot that goes with that that we expect from scholarly communication, but the idea of publishing is really easy. And because of that, maybe it'll give us a chance to fill in some of the missing pieces of the scholarly record. So what do I mean by missing pieces? Well, um, typically, like I so said, we publish just this one slice, the article, but there's a lot more that goes into scholarly research. So it starts with data, right? If I'm doing science, I first need to collect some data. And typically, that sort of ends up in a file drawer somewhere. But nowadays, that can be published. We can make that data available. We can share, right? I'm going to do some analysis. A lot of times do some statistics, right? Um, again, traditionally, you know, like you use session and you just click a bunch of buttons, and then you get something at the end. Hopefully you did it right. Who knows? But nowadays, when we have open source tools like R, for instance, a statistical environment that's reproducible, I can actually run my analysis. I can type it all out, right? So, and then I've got a file. says, This was my analysis. If you want to run my analysis again, you've got the data. And now you've got my R file that has all my statistical analysis and my visualization. You just Put the data in there and click "Go," and it runs the whole thing again. And if you want to modify it a little bit, you modify it a little bit. In fact, there are even scripts that are really cool that, that can actually write your actual paper from that. I mean, you sort of write the prose, and you put little sections like, "Oh, my image will go there, and my table will go here," and my analysis will go here and so like that. And then you hit go," and it combines your prose with your data and your analysis, puts them all in one paper, and you can publish that paper share that whole package with people. So if they want to rerun your paper with different data or they want to make a different conclusion with your same data, it's very easy for them to do, right? Um, we've got stories. I think an article has always been at its core about telling the story, right? Like, I did some science. Here's what I found. The protagonist is me, the hero of inquiry, right? And the antagonist is ignorance lurking in the shadows. And together, you know, we fought ignorance and we found this interesting thing about, you know, dinosaurs or more likely something more boring like what I do. But one way or another, right, you found something interesting, so you're telling a story about something. The paper does that. But there's a lot of other formats that we can tell stories in, too, right? Like, a lot of times a blog post is a really effective format to tell a story in. A lot of times a tweet could tell a really short story, a series of tweets. And then finally there's conversation, right? That's always sort of been the driving force behind uh, behind you know, it's the furnace, right, where, where a lot of the inquiry is forged. Um, those conversations typically just sort of fly away into the ether and they're lost forever. But increasingly, they're happening on Twitter or they're happening in other places where they leave a record. Um, So we have all these different kinds of things that are all starting to leave leave records. We can think of science and scholarly inquiry as being this big forest. We've always sort of just studied the canopy. We've always looked at the obvious things, the articles that are turned out. But now we have a chance to maybe look at the roots, the place where stuff is actually created. And so we have all these tools that can help us do that. So one example is Mendeley. I won't go over that because I think you've already heard the gist of it. Another example is uh, Twitter, um, which, you know, we can see is at least at this particular session really active, which is really exciting for me. Um, but in one month, you know, there can be, you know, something like 60,000 citations uh, or Twitter citations, citations if you like, right, um, to uh, to a scholarly article, right? So it's a significant amount of activity around these articles. Um, we did a study about this because we were curious, you know, are people tweeting things in, in seriousness or is it just kind of like a fun, lulzy sort of thing? And so we asked a bunch of scholars who said, why do, y'all, you know, why do y'all use Twitter? Like, what does it mean to you? And we got answers like from this participant saying that it's like a jury. It's like it's selecting, you know, sort of, it's almost a kind of a peer review for me of the stuff that I'm gonna read. And so Twitter is, at least in some cases, a really significant part of scholarly conversation. And the growth of, um, ac- the, growth of the number in academics on Twitter, I think, is pretty clear. So this graph shows, you know, in 2008, there were very few scholars on Twitter. This is from another study that we did. And, um, you know, the most recent data we have suggests that the population of scholars on Twitter is growing. Uh, there's a link to a lot of the data behind that in the um, slides. All right, so I talked a lot about communication. I said I was going to talk about metrics. So let me try and get into a little bit of metrics, right? Again, let's step back a second, take a historical perspective, right? So in 1961, Garfo creates the Science Citation Index. This, this idea, and it's a really, really powerful and really cool idea, that ideas, although they are ethereal and don't, by their nature, leave a trace in things do perturb certain physical systems. And we can track the flow of ideas by looking at those perturbations. And in particular, he was talking about the citation record. As academics, we typically cite. And those citations are like a trail of breadcrumbs that we leave behind us. When we, when we write something, when we come up with a new idea, we, we endeavor to leave these sorts of pebbles behind us. I always think of this, you know, you've got all of knowledge as this big, flat, rocky plain, right? And you say, well, I got here, and I'm trying to make a stand and plant my flag and show knowledge or whatever, but I didn't get here on my own. I followed, right? I followed other people's trails. And when I will myself try and make my own trails, I'll just leave kind of, you know, pebbles behind me, breadcrumbs behind me, so that people can see where I've been, and those are the citations, right? Merton called them, the great sociologist of science, called them pellets of peer recognition. So anyway, Garfo's ideas. let's look at citations, and let's form a network from those that can tell us about the flow of ideas, that can track the contract flow of ideas. He mined that flow of ideas, he didn't ask, which I think is really significant, right? The problem he was trying to solve was after World War II, uh, there was so much um, research being created, right, that the sort of community wasn't used to this sort of explosion of research funding and research production. um, It was too much. There was an information overload problem, right? And so the way they dealt with it at the time was by professional indexers, and they'd say, hey, you go read an article, write a little abstract of it, and that's how we'll let people know what research is out there and what research they ought to read. Um, But that system was being swamped because it required a lot of the time of expert people. It was individual. You had to ask people, what do you think of this? Is it good? Is it bad? Tell me. Garfield said, let's not do that. Let's listen to the conversations that are already happening. Let's listen to what researchers are already saying via the citation graph. That's going to scale a lot better. And we're going to see that that's a really (coughs) important theme that we'll come back to in a sec. However, although the citation graph is super awesome, it really only tells part of the story. Um, and this has been known for quite some time in the bibliometrics community. So you have people like Kuhn saying that we're never going to be able to spot emerging research fronts by listing citations. They're too lagging, right? Bernal, another great historian of science, saying it's really, you know, the heart of science is about the personal connection, right? That's where things would really happen. And then even Garfield himself saying, we know there's really important journals that aren't cited frequently, We get that, right? That's clearly a weakness of this citation-based approach. Impact doesn't just have one dimension. It's not just citations, right? It's not on, you know, we'll we'll have a look at it later, but it's not like this is good and this is bad and you just count the number of citations and you can find out. The bibliometrics community, like I said, the people who study this have known for a long time that's not true. We've got impact on multiple audiences, so you can have impact on scholars, you can have impact on the public. Both of those could be really important at different times. And you have different kinds of engagement. You might look at something, you might discuss it, you might save it, you might cite it, you might recommend it. There are all these ways that you could engage with contact. So we've got different audiences, we've got different engagement types. And you can sort of list them in a table like this, right? Where you say, you know, it's kind of a two-way table. You've got different audiences, different engagement types. So what have we traditionally done is this, right? My slide didn't reproduce, my apologies. But um, we basically said, in this one particular cell of the table, we can identify impact on the scholarly audience and citation. If we count that particular you know, um, data source, that particular indicator, we can find out about this kind of impact. But with Altmetrics, we can do a little bit better than that. We can do a lot better than that. We can start saying, let's look at alternative ways of gathering impact. Let's look at every cell in this table and try and fill it in with a different indicator. And we can actually start to do that. So these various services, sites, like scholarly 1,000, recommend scholarly topics. Um, Popular press is sort of like a recommendation of, from the popular te- press about what the public would find interesting. Um, we can look at uh, citation traditionally from academics, but we can also look from a more broad perspective. The public can cite things on Wikipedia, too. So every single one of these cells, we can find something interesting. And as scholars increasingly start to use the web and adapt uh, and adopt um, uh, you know, sort of web-native communication technologies, I think this table is going to look even more filled out. So the idea is that Bibliometrics was, like I said, mining impact on the first scholarly web, the web of citations, right, where you have all these citations linking to one another. But Altmetrics is gonna be mining impact on the next web. The next web is the World Wide Web, which is, as uh, I think Blaise Cronin very nicely said, is a nutrient-rich space for scholars, right? This is a place where scholars are gonna be able to roam and play freely. So I wanted to mention really quick um, impact story, which uh, I'm a co-founder of, along with Heather Pavovar. Um, we're funded by the Alpha Peace Loan Foundation um, and we're an application that helps people uh, gather their altmetrics. metrics. How much time do I have? About two. Minutes. About two minutes. Awesome. So I just want to show you this real quick. And that's not what I want to do. Um, I was going to show you a live demo because I'm a little short of time. I'm just going to show you um, a screenshot. But it's impactstory.org if you want to check it out for yourself. Um, what you do is you put in a bunch of research artifacts. You can put in anything. You can put in a tweet. You could put in, uh, sorry, a, 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 you know, a URL for a tweet. You could put in a blog post. We're mostly focused on articles, data sets, and software, because we think those are three really compelling products. But you put those things in, and you get back this sort of set of, was things highly cited? Was it highly recommended? Um, Who cited? So green means highly cited by public, and blue means highly cited by by scholars. And so we're starting to try and take a stab at being able to fill in this table. And so, um, yeah, I think it's kind of fun. You should check it out um, and see a little bit more details about what exactly it does. Um, the important thing is that it's completely open. We think that's really important for the sort of next generation of impact metrics. So it's open source. The data is open. Our governance is really open. Um, there's a framework. So we're not just throwing a bunch of metrics at you. We're saying these are the ways that these metrics uh, relate to things that academics might care about. It's normalized. So when you see this highly saved, we're comparing that to... Um, to uh, randomly, sampled, uh, sub, randomly sampled subsample from the Web of Science. And we're saying, compared to everything indexed by the Web of Science, your particular article is in the 75th percentile or whatever. Um, and then finally, uh, it deals with multiple kinds of products because we think that's a really important um, theme of Web Native scholarship is it doesn't just have to be articles anymore. So wild metrics? Because I think impact isn't this, right? It's not like bad and good. That's a really simplistic view of research impact. There's a lot of data out there. Um, There's uh, some links to studies here that I don't have time to go over. Um, There are some indications that all metrics may predict citations, uh, which is, I think, pretty cool and compelling, although it's not, by only means, uh, the only compelling thing, I think, about this approach. Um, And finally, it gives us a chance to support next generation of web-native scholarship. So I'll tell a really quick story. Um, I think, first of all, it's worth pointing out that journals in my view, as, as um, you heard earlier, I think are a little bit broken. I think they're the best solution available given 17th century technology, which is great, but we don't live in the 17th century anymore, right? I think we could probably do a little bit better. Um, and I think that using the web natively instead of just kind of putting paper on a computer is our best chance to improve the way we do um, scholarly communication. Uh, I, I always think of, you know, the original journal right? a bunch of paper. You put on a horse and deliver to various people. It, we do the same thing today, right? The web is just a faster horse, right? It's the same basic format. It's the same basic experience. So I'll give you an, an, an example of way I think things could change a little bit. Um, uh, and I'll try and make a quick example, because I know I'm very short on time. Um, I, I wrote an article, and I submitted it, and it waited, and waited, and waited, and waited, and waited, and just still hadn't gotten to peer review. of, you know, it was very frustrating, because it's like, look, it's been like a year, and maybe this isn't that good, but I think it's good, and I'd like for the world to see it. And it was very So I asked the journal, I said, do y'all mind if I just, I wrote this on Google Doc, can I just make the Google Doc public and then tweet it? And to their credit, say, sure, why not, that's fun. So I did that. And uh, it was really exciting, it was really fun, because a lot of people gave me comments. So I got a lot of peer review on this paper. A lot of people found like, really significant flaws of the paper that I wasn't aware of, and the, the peer reviewers later didn't find. Uh, so it really improved the paper, which was cool. So I kind of got the, cer- the, you know, the certification or improvement function of, of peer review. And then one of the other things that excited me that I was a little surprised about is I was talking to somebody at a conference who was kind of a big guy in my field. And I was like, you know, I have some of these ideas. Let me share them with you. And, uh, and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, because I, I read your article about that. I was like, what do you mean, it's not published yet? He's like, no, no, but I, I read the Google Doc. Now, this is pretty cool, actually, right? This is a way that I can really powerfully disseminate my research. Not only am I getting the chance uh, to get it improved, I'm also disseminating to the people who care. There are very few people in the world who care about my research, right? But... I mean, that's, that's a fact, right? I mean, like, that's true for all of us in science, right? Your specific sub-area is, like, very small. But what's cool is that almost all of those people, or a really large percentage of those people, follow me on Twitter. So when I want to reach, I don't need to reach the entire world. I just need to reach the people who care, right? And so it's, like, maybe 1,500 people or something who care. I can get in touch with them on Twitter, and they can read this article, and they can share it with the other people who care. For that world to happen, for this kind of scholarly communication to happen, right, that's more personal, that's more responsive, that's more built around uh, the ease of publishing with a small p, of making things public, for that to work, we need to have powerful metrics of impact, and that's a big part of what motivates us at impact Story. is we want to be able to say, let's, let's put that, that journal article that I did, right, let's imagine it never did get published, let's put that in Impact Story. let's see how many people tweeted it, how many people saved it, how many people cited it, and let's start building impact at the level of the item itself. Rather than simply the prestige of the organization it's associated with. And so we think that this altmetrics approach uh, in the next few years is gonna hopefully start to make people really think about what impact can be in a different way and what sorts of things they can create in a different way. Um, We think that second revolution has started already, and (laughs) I messed up my slides, but as Winkler said, right, citation graph is like Chekhov's gun, right? Like once you bring it on stage, you have to fire it, which is, of course, different, Chekhov. I want to thank my funders uh, and the people who fund Impact Story and then get out of your way. Thank you. Thank you.
0: <laughs> well, thank you to all our speakers, and we're now going to um throw the session open to questions. We've got uh, some people with uh, oh, they're taking my mic. <laughs> We've got end that one. Yeah, you can yeah. have, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> So if uh, we can ask people to, um, to put their hands up and uh, get the mics, and what I'm going to do is ask for sort of two or three questions at a time and then refer them over to the panel. So can we start here, and is there somebody else that wants to ask a question afterwards? Okay, well, let's start with Brian.
4: Brian Kelly, Yukon University, Bath. Question for for Jason. Really, um, we can see some evidence of the impact of the the Twitter stream, the the, the questions, the things being shared, which includes um, spam and links to porn sites and the like. So we know alt media can can be be spammed. We've also got the questions about alt media being gained or the limitations of of alt media, the ways in which uh, the metrics can be can be analysed. I recently wrote something about the the limitations of the total impact, sto- the impact story and slideshare stats, which just might indicate the uh, views of a blog post and not actually people scroll down down to read it. So aren't there dangers that with the metrics approach that we're building things on very flaky foundations? I know you spoke about the, the openness of approaches, but in terms of, say, what you're getting from slideshare, it's just scraping the stats that they provide, and we don't actually know what that means and how relevant it is to the bigger impact issues.
0: Can, is there any other questions
5: about this one? Just... Hi, I, I think it's um, a plea to be... Sorry,
0: could I ask you to Sorry. say your name and where Nick you're Scott going.
5: from uh, ODI. Um, I think it's a plea to be clearer about what we mean by impact. I was quite worried from that last set of slides at the way impact was being used. It feels like quite a lot of the things on that slide are steps towards impact, but I I feel quite strongly that the purpose of research is to change the world in some way, and that's real impact. Um, And what we we have here, even though it can be gamed, is a very useful set of indicators as to whether you're making some of the right moves towards ultimate impact. But I think we need to be careful about not not navel-gazing too much About it and actually keeping our eye on on the goal.
0: Is there one more question before we refer back to the. Hello, I'm Paula Nee from Technopolis. Mine relates to the previous point: is that that seemed to be, although very, very fascinating, largely about academic impact and sort of internal impact. And how might those these new metrics be used for wider impact with policymakers, businesses, and the like? Well, could we start with, with Jason as one of the questions was directed to you?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, can you hear me okay? Okay, cool. Um, so there's certainly flakiness involved in any kind of way we want to measure things, right? There's error in measurement, and we would always expect there to be error in measurement. The important thing, right, is to... Uh, improve the quality of our instruments such that we can reduce that error, and also to uh, quantify the error so that we know kind of what we're dealing with. So with impact story, one of the things we do is we're very clear about where we get our metrics. Uh, we're clear about potential uh, errors where we may be less accurate, and we provide sort of error bars with a 95% confidence interval on in our statistics. So that's a first step. I think it's really early um, in in the world of trying to get these alternatives. Alternative metrics, right? So citations um, emerge as a really important metric of impact only after years of serious research. So, with my PhD hat, I try and do that kind of research. Um, At the same time, even though I think it is early and there's a lot we have to learn, there are also um, a lot of really interesting things that we can find right now by looking at metrics. So, um, there are a lot of, one of the reasons why why we're called impact stories, there are a lot of really interesting stories that can be surfaced by, for instance, looking at a Twitter stream and saying, oh, this is a person who I didn't know was interested in my work, and it turns out they are. Or this is, uh, I'm getting to another question, right, this is a clinician who's, and there, uh, Cameron has a great story about this, which he may share with us later, this, this is a clinician who's using my work and tweeting to other clinicians that this is pretty cool work, right? So these are indications, and they're ways of uncovering really interesting stories. Um, I think in the next couple of years, as we see increasing amounts of work from the scientometrics community, uh, validating these measures, I think they're going to become more powerful uh, from a quantitative sense as well.
1: So to add to the point about gaming and spamming, I think it's um, well known that the citation record itself has also been being, being gamed um, by you know, commissioning review articles or enforcing self-citations. And a couple of journals were thrown out of the Thomson Reuters citation index because of that. And the way I look at it is, in the current system with the citations, I think the, the ability to game is in a lot fewer hands. So it's between you know two and three academics to do citation bartering and exchange citations, uh, or one rogue editor to to enforce self citations. Whereas with kind of community-based measurements, be they saves or readership on Mendeley or tweets or blog mentions, you have a sort of distributed measure. And Yes, that can be gamed, but I would agree with with Jason that it's more about improving the instrumentation to filter out that error. Um, Should I go on uh, to the other questions as well? Um, So as for the question of of what constitutes impact and whether the purpose of research is to change the world, um, I would agree that ultimately it is, but if you only look at it that way, then you kind of discount perhaps the importance of basic research where the researcher is not aware of how his thinking might ultimately influence the world um, or, or change the world. I mean, quantum mechanics being a prime example for that. Like, when it was discovered, people thought it was an anomaly that you just need to resolve and then everything would be fine, but you know, it formed the basis for uh, kind of modern physics and, and a lot of uh, industry as well. Um, so, in that sense, if, if I personally talk about impact um, and being a former academic myself, for me, it's always about trying to figure out how have other people influenced my thinking as an academic, and how have I influenced their thinking. And I think that's not accurately reflected <clears throat> through citations alone, because there are certain conventions around what you're supposed to cite, and you're not usually supposed to cite you know, a review article that's really helped you grasp um, the sense of a field when you're writing your own paper. Um, so... Kind of finding better ways of figuring out how how your thinking was influenced by other people, other academics, and how you influence theirs would for me be the main purpose of of talking about impact in in this context.
3: Yeah, to add a really quick note to that, um, I was mentioning earlier about you know how we think of citations, as Victor says, it's an intentional act, right? And it has a certain set of norms around it. You sort of again placing these pebbles on this plane. What I like to think of with the web is that we increasingly have a snowfall on top of this plane, right? where now, instead of having to intentionally leave pebbles, your footprints just show up, right? When we have these conversations that aren't on purpose, they can still show up and we can maybe look at them. And that's a chance to view um, early changes that may end up being much more significant later on or, as Victor says, maybe sort of significant, more of a pure sense right now.
2: So um, I've, I've no quibble with the thought that actually these additional kinds of measures are... Um, helpful. They actually do augment the process. But I don't think they are likely to fundamentally replace the mechanisms which which, um, ultimately enable the conditions under which someone can make an authoritative knowledge claim. So if if, um, the ultimate aim of impact is um, changing the world and the interim um, concept of impact is influencing other scholars... Um, there are many, many people competing for everyone's attention on that front and it's just not convincing to me that one can imagine um, a sort of a, a crowdsourced filtering mechanism as entirely displacing the, um, the, the expert judgment up front which is currently represented by the peer review mechanism. It seems like that that's the place at which you can um, really do an in-depth assessment of the quality of the claims being made. And as I said earlier that, that I, I think a lot of what may apply in some areas of STEM sciences, I don't necessarily think apply in the same kind of theoretical re- realms of, of social science. Um, there was an interesting um, study that looked at acceptance rates of, um, um, uh, uh, of journals in anthropology and a significant difference between the so- social and cultural anthropology journals Which had rejection rates of around 65 or 70%, physical anthropology around 30%. And just seems like there is a very general um, difference between um, observational and empirical claims, um, which have a sort of more fungible quality, as opposed to theoretical claims, which actually need quite an in depth um, um, engagement. And I think um, peer review will never go away, I think, fundamentally from helping make those assessments.
1: If I could comment on that. Uh, I actually have my, my doubts about that mm. um, my own experience with peer review, uh, peer review is that some of my papers have undoubtedly been greatly improved through peer review and a few have been terribly butchered to the point of uh, you know, beyond recognition um, because you inevitably run into these uh, conflicts of interest, you know, some people have built their entire reputation on a field and they would find it very hard to uh, have someone else challenge those notions if, if their entire career is built on that And there's a famous quote by Paul Lauterbohr, Nobel laureate in physics, who said you could write the entire history of of science in the past 50 years in terms of papers rejected by science and nature. Um, And I came across another paper, Nobel laureates in economics, uh, who spoke about their experience with the paper that made their reputation and won them the Nobel Prize. And invariably, almost all of them had that paper rejected by the journal. So I think peer review is not necessarily the best way to let revolutionary and big ideas bubble up through academia. And if you look at physics and maths with uh, archive, where it's custom now to just deposit your uh, unpeer reviewed work in the public forum and then have uh, vivid and, and lucid debate emerge around that um, before it's actually submitted to a journal, then I don't see why necessarily we would need to hang on to kind of this pre-publication peer review instead of moving to a connected world where people submit their thoughts to a pre-print archive or posted online and you do get, as in Jason's examples, uh, good feedback from tweets um, and blog posts and other means of discourse that might uh, obviate the need for peer review as we know it currently.
3: Yeah, and I, I would add that it's meaningful and important to frame the terms of the debate clearly because what can happen is I, I, someone said I really like, like, there's big P publishing, which is, like, using the publishing system that we're used to, like, have you published yet? And there's small P, which is making public. And I think the same is true about peer review, the same is true about impact, right? We're used to framing discussions about these very important ideas in terms that are very traditional and conventional. So I think being reviewed by one's peers is, is quite important, right? That's what science is about. It's a peer social system. But doing that in the same peer review system that we've built in the last about 70 years or so, again, the peer review system we have now is sort of a legacy of post-war science. Before then, you know, Einstein's papers mostly weren't peer-reviewed, right? Like, the uh, Watson and Crick paper, not peer-reviewed, right? Like, the the peer-review system that we have today is relatively recent and I think it's good for us to think about review by peers being a lowercase, right, sort of activity that we can think of many different ways to do it in.
0: Can I just uh, refer back to the question about how these tools can be used sort of beyond academia and, and opening up Research to to policymakers and business leaders, and those where where these tools can really can really help there. Because they've got any comments on? Or... Do want to go?
3: Well, it's definitely something that we're really keen on. So That's why we had this sort of idea of public engagement and scholarly engagement. Um, is that we really want to try and capture those kinds of conversations. Um, there's also uh, really interesting work being done uh, associated with VIVO project um, called the Becker model, which has become really popular in the last couple of years. Worth checking out about kind of what you're talking about, like there's policy, there's health, there's a lot of different sort of dimensions that we can look at impact. Um, In Impact Story, our goal is to do it in a scalable way. So anything that scales that we can mine automatically are the things that we focus on. And it has the really powerful advantage of being able to be used uh, across many different disciplines, across many different scholars, um, and quickly. But I think there's also lots of other approaches um, that are a little bit more manual, a little bit l- more laborious, but still have terrific, um, terrific payoffs.
1: <clears throat> I think in terms of um, practical, well, not practical, but uh, commercial use, for example, so outside of academia, but in industry, and possibly also government, um, I've, in my presentation, talked about the Mendeley Institutional Edition, which is a dashboard for librarians. And we've been approached by... Um, and d heavy companies if we could build similar dashboards for them to use internally or for specific fields of science uh, we 've also been approached by funders who are interested in this sort of data to figure out uh, what are emerging fields of science and new ideas that might deserve funding um, also again in very commercial terms old uh, metric, the startup that um, comes out of the nature and Macmillan stable they are actually selling their old metric data, so for them it 's a commercial venture. Um, publishers have asked us for an equivalent dashboard uh, of the Mendeley Institutional Edition so that they can get kind of business intelligence of how well their journals are doing at specific universities. So obviously these are still, the last examples I gave, are still very much focused on academic use cases, but I think you can easily see um, trend and analysis data being of wider significance in uh, industry and, and government decision making.
2: I think in some ways that, that, that there could be more benefits on that front than um, on the kind of scholarly impact chain in the sense that it's been a bedeviling problem for social science to know how to influence policymakers one way or another and it's been debated in workshops and conferences that I've definitely attended around the world um, and um, it's fraught because we know that policymakers' attention span is very short that they are um, in hoc to other pressures often the tabloid headlines or whatever else it may be that make it quite hard to focus on evidence-based policy in a and instead create um, um, policy-based evidence. So it may well be that if, you, if an academic, in wanting to make their case and get someone's attention, can cite some of the more sort of popularity-orientated measures, that might have more of a, um, a grab on a politician's mind space than otherwise. The reservations I was putting out earlier was really about how you build a reputation in, in scholarly terms, so therefore um, internal academic impact. But externally... I think authority shades into popularity much more and actually there may be tools available to people to help make that kind of a case more readily.
0: So can we take uh, some more questions? I, th- I
4: think there's someone just behind the camera Hello, I'm Bakani from Vertigo Ventures. Um, I'm really interested again to pick up on this point about impact and by that, I'm going to go back to what I would say are real-world impacts. One of the things that we're trying to do at our startup is identify metrics such as, you know, this new development will save X percent of somebody's life, you know, will provide years more life. That sort of metric, you know, this will save, you know, far less carbon being emitted by this car. That's sort of really practical metric. To what extent are you guys working on that and, you know, really welcome... Collaborations from that extent, but we're looking for, you know, really practical, I guess, metrics of how academics' work is being taken out into the real world.
0: Thank you. Any more? There's one from Cameron. Oh, sorry.
4: Um,
2: Graham Crow, National Centre for Research Methods. It's really just a, a kind of concern I've got about ethics, and wonder whether you could all just reflect a little bit about. Uh, the ethics of what you're describing, and, and you're kind of talking about positive endorsements of, of materials and, and ideas being put out there. But um, you know, reputations can be made, but they can also be uh, adversely affected by um, responses that, 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 that are possible in, in these kind of contexts. Uh, and so, I wonder whether you could just maybe share some uh, examples of where more ethical difficulties have been faced and how, how they're kind of handled.
3: Cameron
5: Nalen-Plos. I was really taken by um, Ziad's comment on roots to authority, um, and w- I'm wondering whether... all um, well, the panellists would be in reflecting on the question of we have authority in um, scholarly contexts, and that's, for me, being too closely linked to prestige in the past, and that might be an interesting distinction to make. Um, But how can we build systems that help to translate and give credibility to authority in different settings? Um, Particularly the question that rose in the previous session, that people who have authority to communicate in policy settings or practitioner settings or in cultural settings, Um, how can we build those kinds of authority from the data, um, measures of authority and, and, and certification of authority from the kinds of data that are being collected, or is is that just um, heading in the wrong direction? Right. Well,
0: could we start with you as as that one was... Okay.
2: Yeah. So um, I think the two... um, Well, in my head, there's a slight connection between your question and the um, the ethics question in the sense that um, people can build up popularity, prestige, celebrity, things which aren't really to do with... um, authority, expertise, and so on. Um, I was wondering, actually, if, if you know, whether, um, you know, who, who under, under sort of the overall sort of holistic altmetrics assessment had the highest impact, one way or another, in, um, in this year. And I wondered if it might be um, the social psychologist Diederik Stappel who um, uh, has quite um, um, famously been uh, caught out for fraudulently manipulating um, his data, and has had now thirty articles rescinded and counting um, the, the, the to have a, a, a sort of a buoyant response in the Twitter sphere or in the blogosphere or whatever is something which is potentially a um, a, a double sided um, or a, a double edged blade and and so it seems to me that um, pe- while, while peer review is incredibly. Um, limited for the various reasons and citation clubs also create the flip side problem and that, that system can be gamed too it's in the kind of characteristic of the least worst as a way of trying to provide some bulwark against the tendencies that, that um, are even more at free play um, through journalism and the blogosphere unfettered and i just suppose I, I feel that i'm not sure that you can rely entirely on the crowd to do that relevant sifting i think you need the upfront engaged engaged work to help, help you help you tell the difference um, I don't have um, any specific practical tips about how these measures will um, tell the real-world story. I think those are um, the cases that need to be made by those academics involved.
1: Um, I think talking about cases like Diedrich Stapel and uh, saying that you know maybe they would have had the highest altmetric count by virtue of having been treated I think goes toward what I believe both uh, Jason and I have been arguing, that you have to go beyond just tweeted yes, no, but you have to really understand what's the story behind the tweet, what's the context. Um, Also, I think, if you point out Diedrich Stapel and all other cases of fraud, all of those were missed by the peer review, but they were uh, uncovered by the community afterwards. So isn't that actually a case that peer review is useless in those cases, and you should trust the community to discover whether someone has manipulated images or reused data by making the data more open and enabling more people to have a look at it up front rather than having two anonymous reviewers who will then not spot that problem, um, generally, when it comes to uh, other ethical problems with crowdsourcing these sorts of uh, annotations, so if i 'm thinking about the example you know of Clank or our EU grant of crowdsourcing annotations between documents, um, certainly there is the danger that there might be, if you will academic libel, you know, of saying oh, this paper is being refuted by something else, but in the end if you uh, open it up to the community, then you might have one dissenter saying, well, this paper's being refuted by that paper, but you have 20 others who then could point out that that's actually not the case, or that this paper is being supported by five others so that you don't have that sort of selective bias that one individual can exhibit, but you rather have the wisdom of the crowd, which, mind you, can also be wrong, but uh, in general, I always feel that more eyes on the problem are, are better than, you know, kind of one or two anonymous people looking at it.
3: Yeah, it's uh, really well said, Victor. Thanks. Um, I don't have a ton to add other than to say the ethics, I think, are important now and are in- going to be increasingly important as these things become more important. So I think inexorably, in the next 10 years, 15 years, researchers are going to be evaluated much more Comprehensively, we're already seeing the beginnings of this, right? Like the places that you've published, the impact factors where you publish are incredibly important now. There's these sort of numerical measures that um, can cause people to be hired and fired. They in many places in the world have monetary bonuses associated with them, the impact factor that you're publishing. Um, so we're already seeing that quantification is becoming extremely important in the way we do science, quantification of impact. Um, I forget her name. Someone calls that commensuration where um, inexorably as you start to measure things, they start to, it starts to affect people's behavior. I think what excites me about Altmetric, altmetrics in part is that we begin to build an opportunity to move beyond one-dimensional analysis and maybe give everybody a little bit more of a fair shot. Um, currently, when we build an academic department, I think a lot of times folks fall in the trap of trying to build a football team, American football team, built entirely of quarterbacks, right? You have just the one... One particular role that's maybe the most flashy and the most well known, and so you, you try and get all citation superstars. But I think in reality, we want to build a team, we want to build something more balanced, right? You need a quarterback, you need a fullback, you need know, all these various people. Some of them are big and large, some of them are small and fast. Some of them uh, publish in Nature and Science all the time, some of them publish in the New York Times all the time. Some of them have a killer blog. Some of them are great at methods, some of them uh, are great at uh, equipment. There's all different sorts of skills that different researchers bring to the table. And I think if we can start thinking of impact in a broader sense, and we can start measuring impact in a broader sense, then we're going to be um, able to build a more equitable way of assessing and rewarding impact, and not only more equitable, but I think more efficient and more effective as well.
2: Just a quickie. Just I'm saying that it's um, augmentation, but not displacement of the traditional mechanism. The question is, will the traditional mechanism is it broken and will it vanish? And I don't know that it will. And I think you know the the heart of um, Cameron Nylons' question was, are, are authority mechanisms gained in different contexts, and is that meaningful and relevant to this question? So, Victor, when you're saying everyone can look at the article and refute it, well. In an area like physics, where everyone agrees that force equals mass times, acceleration, there's a lot of there's a common stock of knowledge that's being used, um, which is different from the more contested areas where there's a kind of crossover between fact and value. So when social theorists try and understand power and alternating between a Gramscian approach versus a Giddens approach versus a Stephen Luke's approach, you actually need to – I do think that in those contexts – just pure upfront crowdsource filtering isn't going to do the job sufficiently. You need um, the judgment of the peers who, who can at least say, the person here, who spend the time to say this person seems to be sufficiently embedded in the literature, seems to be making sufficiently significant claims that, which are credible, as opposed to just someone having read a bit about it and putting it up on a blog. And I think that that's the only argument I'm trying to make, is to say let's not homogenize the concept of the face of science. I think, actually, the characteristics of a lot of social science don't automatically read across. Uh,
1: to me, that argument um, smacks almost, I'm sorry to say that, a bit of uh, elitism, because who judges who is qualified to judge? Um, there are so many ways that you can gain expertise uh, in certain fields without having been appointed a judge by virtue of being a, you know, professor at a prestigious university or having published in Science and Nature. It could be uh, you know, a PhD student in some remote lab who's, just, who's brilliant and who's read every paper imaginable on the subject and who can therefore make a much more qualified uh, and insightful comment on you know, a paper that you, know, that you mentioned than somebody who's been in the field for 30 years but maybe hasn't published and is blinded. So I think it's a very difficult um, judgment to make who's qualified to judge. And therefore, my feeling is that more open is better, with the caveat that, of course, there will be a lot of noise as well. And you have to find an efficient way of filtering out the noise.
2: Will that new brilliant academic actually find a way to to develop an authoritative voice when we are swimming in such a huge information stream? That's the the heart of the question here. What are the mechanisms through which they can gain the authority they deserve? I absolutely agree that the current mechanisms are incredibly flawed and problematic in lots of ways. I'm just not sure they'll be entirely adequately
3: displaced by the crowd. I think something you say is incredibly important is the idea that we are on the verge of a qualitative shift in the amount of information that academics are expected to handle. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you look at, there's great studies by um, uh, King that looks at, uh, Tenant Parent King, that looks at the amount of time scholars spend reading, like reading scholarly articles, and uh, it's stayed the same since the 70s uh, because they just have, they spend as much time as they possibly can on it and they don't have any more. But the number of articles they've read has increased quite substantially. They're just trying to do the same things they did before, but faster, right? And that's a really clear sign of a broken system, right? Just do that, but faster, right? Well, I'm already doing it as fast as I can, right? So we need ways to actually qualitatively improve the way you do with information. I think the the analog to me is really clear between the early days of the web, which was also an information overload problem, that the first first, first couple years of the web, there were lists of all the web pages because you could manage it that way. And then as it grew a little bit, then there was uh, Directory. So this places like Yahoo said, we will, you know, librarians. I'm in a library school. So librarians, bless their hearts, said, we're going to tell you what is good on the internet, right? And we'll have a list. This is all the good things and we'll list them all out. It was a peer review system, right? It was a pre, uh, pre maybe it was already out there, but it was, uh, it was quite analogous to the scholarly pre-print peer review system where we'll decide if it's good you can look at our list and then you'll know if it's good or not. But of course that was utterly broken by the scale of the web. Totally destroyed. And you might think, well, and how could we discern? How can we discern the goals from the dross? Like, we will have no way without experts telling us. Well, the way you discern is you do listen to the crowd, right? That's what Google does, right? That's why Google won this problem. Is they said, let's look <coughs> at the entire cite- the citation graph. Essentially, Paige was working on citation research when he did this. Let's look at the web citation graph, the link graph, and let's see who's getting a lot of links. And as Victor says, you have to, you know, who watches the watchers? How do we decide who the experts are? You decide who the experts are by recursively looking at that link graph and saying, Did I get a lot of links? Did the people who linked to me get a lot of links? Did those people get a lot of links, right? It's amazing how much you can do with math, right? When you start looking at that graph, you find all kinds of cool stuff. I think scholarship can do the same thing. My apologies. unless,
2: Unless you blend it with this other way of expert judgment, I suspect you'll end up displacing social scientists with journalists.
0: Okay, I think we're. <laughs> I think clearly this could run and run, and I, I'm not in any way saying talking about our own impact now, but we are now trending on Twitter nationally, so well done, people. <laughs> um, but um, that seems like a really great place to stop for lunch. Lunch is available in the room across the way, and if you'd like to join me in thanking again all of our speakers from today.